0: Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levisay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at War.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, the French Revolution. Today's episode is titled One Revolutionary War, and you guessed it, we're going to be talking about war. Not the French Revolutionary Wars, however, but instead the American version, the original Revolutionary War. Specifically, we're going to be covering the newly crowned and woefully inept King Louis XVI and his decision to get France involved in yet another international conflict with Great Britain. The consequences of this expensive and ideological conflict are pretty damn significant, as are the controversial events that involve the Swiss wonderboy Jacques Necker, aka the people's messiah. So without further ado, let's begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 3, One Revolutionary War. Holding out for a hero. What a song. If you haven't listened to Holding Out for a Hero by Bonnie Taylor, may I suggest you indulge. It's perfection. The song has a treasured place in my childhood memories, not because I was a child when it was released. Far from it. But instead, because a cover of the song is the backing music to one of the greatest cinematic scenes in history. The scene in Shrek 2 where human Shrek storms the castle with a giant gingerbread man to receive his true love's magical kiss. I love that scene. And I love that song. And even though it failed to claim the number one spot on the UK single chart the year after it was released, peaking at number two, I'm going to put that down to the fact that the song just clearly wasn't released at the right place, at the right time. I am willing to wager that had the song been released in French, it would have been the number one hit across the channel, or certainly so, if it had been released in 1774. Why? Well, that's when Louis XV died, and the French people were definitely holding out for a hero. During his 58-year reign, Louis XV had earned himself the nickname, Louis the Well-Beloved. In reality, he was not beloved by many. His long reign, the second longest in French history, had left a bitter taste in the mouths of many French people. The Parlements had been suppressed, the armed forces had been defeated, multiple colonies had been annexed, government debt had ballooned, the public image of the court had been dragged through the mud. Upon Louis XV's death, the French people were undeniably holding out for a hero, one in the image of Louis XIV. Initially, the French people thought they might have had one. Initially, the French people saw in the young Louis XVI, the hero they were looking for. I cannot confirm if he was strong, fast, or a streetwise Hercules, but whatever he appeared like at the time, the people saw him as a chance to rejuvenate the French monarchy and the French nation. Obviously, however, Louis XVI does not maintain this heroic persona in the eyes of the people who would eventually behead him. For those in the know, those members of the French court who already knew who Louis XVI really was, clues that he was not the French messiah were painfully obvious from the moment he inherited the throne. They obviously didn't know that Louis XVI's reign was going to end in revolution, but they certainly knew that the grandson of Louis XV was not going to be the hero that the masses longed for. In fact, the new monarchs knew it themselves, according to mardin Campan. Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette knelt down and embraced each other, having heard the news of the king's death, and murmured, My God, guide us and protect us. We are too young to ascend to the throne. Being too young was just one of the many problems facing the new rulers of the realm. I'll let the professionals explain just what kind of king the French nation received when Louis began his reign on the 10th of May, 1774. Historian François Mignot writes, He was deficient in that sovereign which alone accomplishes great changes in states, and which is essential to monarchs who wish to limit their power as to those who wish to aggrandize it. Historian Edward Lau also fails to hold back. Totally incapable of standing by himself, he lent successively or simultaneously on his aunt, his wife, his ministers, his courtiers, as ready to change his policy as his advisor. Historian Robert Johnson is no kinder. Worst of all, for an autocrat, he had not in his nature one particle of those qualities that go to make up the man of action, decision, energy, courage, wholeheartedness. If you're now picturing somebody completely inadequate to be sitting on the French throne during a revolution, you're probably on the money. From all reports, Louis XVI is kind-hearted and caring, but... Such qualities alone did not make one fit to be king. The French system was designed to have a strong, autocratic monarch, and in Louis Sixteenth, it had received anything but. Add on top of that a restless nobility, starving peasants, ambitious bourgeoisie, and you're starting to get all the ingredients you need for one big melting pot of well-brewed trouble. Despite these shortcomings and inadequacies, the French people had an enormous amount of hope for Louis XVI. Perhaps these deficiencies were only obvious to historians who benefit from hindsight, and to the few people at the time who were close enough to the action to see through the propaganda. Whatever the case may be, for the public, Louis XVI was meant to usher in a new golden age. Louis XVI was meant to right the wrongs of his predecessors and restore both France's honour and prosperity. Historian Charlier Matthews describes these hopes as follows. When Louis XVI came to the throne of France May 10, 1774, it was universally believed that this clumsy, conscientious, stupid young man and his beautiful wife were to introduce a period of national prosperity, such as France had not known since the early days of Louis XIV. In the first few years of the reign of this clumsy, incapable, kind-hearted yet indecisive king, Louis XVI had to tackle the two key legacies of his predecessor. How he went about this would have a direct impact on the groundwork being laid for the coming revolution. The first issue to be dealt with regarded what to do with those pesky parlements. The second issue was how to handle the ramifications of the disastrous Seven Years' War. On the first issue, Louis recalled the parlements and restored their authority. Now, Historians debate as to why he did this. After all, Louis XV had successfully replaced the courts with councils of appointed officials. Unpopular councils for sure, but replacements nonetheless. Since Louis XV had already suppressed the Parlement, one of the few political entities capable of challenging the power of the monarchy, why on earth did Louis XVI bring them back? The answer, debatably, can be found resting with that genie of public opinion. The Parlemans had successfully cast themselves as the defenders of the people, the check on crazed and corrupt absolute monarchs. Louis XVI might have brought them back in an attempt to win the favour of the people, a symbolic gesture that was bound to be a crowd-pleaser, a policy that was to reinforce the commonly held view that Louis was shepherding in a new golden age of national prosperity. Louis was cautious on the move, however. It was his ministers who lobbied for the recall of the Parlements, and, unfortunately for Louis, it was his ministers that he listened to. You see, bringing back the Parlements was more than just a symbolic gesture. Reempowering the courts had practical ramifications. In attempting to distinguish his reign from that of his predecessor, Louis XVI was unwittingly letting a very dangerous animal out of its cage. With the benefit of hindsight, we know that Louis's actions were in every sense of the word, a mistake. The king would pay dearly for it. But just what price he would pay, well, that was kind of dictated by how Louis handled the second key legacy of his grandfather's reign, the situation in America. After the wake of the Seven Years' War, both the economy and honour of the French nation were left in tatters. Historian Alfred Leroy describes the humiliation as being almost theatrical. You know something has to be monumentally, almost unbelievably bad when the adjective used to describe the humiliation is theatrical. Perhaps then it should not be a surprise that when Louis XVI was offered a chance to correct this wrong, to remove this great stain on the honour of the French kingdom, he took it. In 1775, conflict erupted in the British colonies across the Atlantic. The American Revolutionary War had begun. After the Seven Years' War, the colonies in America no longer had a hostile French neighbour to scare them into the security of British rule. Furthermore, the repressive tactics, policies and restrictions of the British government had combined with Enlightenment thinking such as no taxation without representation, helping to push the Americans towards rebellion. The question this revolt presented to the French court was twofold. Should the French help the revolutionaries, and if so, to what extent? This decision, however, was by no means a simple one to make. Too often, French involvement is portrayed as a king who sees an opportunity for revenge and takes it. The fact of the matter is is that while a simple narrative, it's ultimately a false one too. The decision to involve France in the American Revolutionary War was not so black and white. In reality, the king and his cabinet were divided on the issue. The first thorny issue for the French government was whether or not they wanted to help this political revolution in the British colonies. According to historian Simon Sharma, Queen Marie Antoinette openly questioned the wisdom of France helping to replace another monarchy with a republican government. We'll speak about Queen Marie Antoinette's role in the revolution later, but I'll flag right now, right here and now, that I am not a big fan. I do not like Marie Antoinette. In saying that, this is one of the few but significant times where the Queen gives her husband completely sound, on-the-money political advice. The Queen's concerns were justified. If France were to go to war with Britain on behalf of the American revolutionaries, France would also be inadvertently going to war on behalf of the American revolutionaries' ideology. A declaration of war would also amount to a declaration of support for ideas such as liberty, justice and self-government. The Queen cautioned that if the French fought for the Americans, and thus for their ideas, such an intervention would have an impact on French society. In this, the Queen had a point, and a damn good one. Surely intervening in such a political conflict on behalf of republicanism was bound to weaken the pillars of absolute monarchy back home. It's not too different really when you think about it to say how the justification for war with Nazi Germany haunted the British and French empires after World War II. If you go to war with Hitler to defend the sovereign integrity of Poland, to defend the right of the Polish people to enjoy the benefits of self-determination and self-rule then how can you justify failing to give those same rights, those same privileges, to millions of people under colonial rule in Africa, the Middle East, India, and Southeast Asia? The Queen was onto something. The ideological discrepancies between the American Republic and the French old regime could and would prove problematic for the autocratic regime of Louis XVI. Ideology alone, however, was not the only reason for the French to stay out of the war. Anne-Robert Jacques Turgot, as Controller general of Finances and as Head of the Treasury, held one of the most powerful positions in the Cabinet. Turgot was opposed to the war for pragmatic reasons, not ideological ones. He didn't see an avenue to restore national honour as much as he saw a path to national destruction. The Seven Years' War and the conflicts which came before it had left the French nation in a significant amount of debt. Togo was of the opinion that France couldn't financially sustain a conflict with Great Britain should it occur, and thus must prevent such a situation by all means necessary. In arguing for his position, Togot declared, The first gunshot will drive the state to bankruptcy. Like Marie Antoinette, he was partially right. Like Marie Antoinette, he was not convincing enough. Louis XVI was no warmonger, and by no means leaping at the opportunity to fight the British and restore French honour. Vergen, however, the country's powerful foreign minister, held that a military intervention was for the good of the French nation. Some liberally-minded nobles and members of the public were calling for intervention on the grounds of it being just, to defend the rights of an oppressed people from an evil British empire, blah 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 blah. Vergen was not an idologue. He was not being swayed by appeals for some greater moral cause based on Enlightenment thinking. The term may not have been invented yet, but he held very closely to the ideas of realpolitik. Vergen held the opinion that intervention was for the pragmatic good of the state. He reasoned that victory would enable the French to secure trade and commerce across the high seas, and simultaneously weaken a key enemy. More importantly, however, Vigen also feared that a lack of intervention would have terrible consequences for the French. Vigenes believed that if England won, they would use their large military presence in the region to attack the French West Indies once the Americans had been defeated. However, Vigen also feared that if the Americans proved victorious, an alliance between America and England could result and this English-speaking coalition would move not only against French sugar islands, but also wealthy Spanish interests in Peru and Mexico. It was for these pragmatic reasons that Vigen urged for war. His lack of ideological motivations can be found in the fact that at this very same time, a Republican revolt was happening much closer to home in Geneva. However, These revolutionaries were hostile to France, and so unlike the revolutionaries across the Atlantic, the Genevan rebels received no aid from Vigene. Instead, he sought to crush the neighbouring rebellion under the foot of the French Empire. This is how Vigene himself described his approach to the two republican revolutions. The insurgents who I am driving from Geneva are agents of England, while the American insurgents are friends for years to come. I have dealt with both of them, not by reason of their political systems, but by reason of their attitudes towards France. Such are my reasons of state. Realpolitik at its finest. I can't help but contrast such a policy to that of the great nations from our own time. This pragmatic policy pursuit is something I would expect to see from a country like the United States punish Russia for intervening in Ukraine's juvenile democracy, yet make no serious attempt to protest the slide back into authoritarian rule by much-needed allies like Egypt, so long as it guarantees stability and protects US interests. Vigen is, in my opinion, a very modern minister of foreign affairs, despite living 250 years ago. Anyway, we digress.
0: Find The Age of Napoleon
1: wherever you get your podcasts. Virgin's argument for securing vital trade routes and colonial defences were not necessarily enough to push a hesitant king to war. Luckily for Virgin's schemes, there was another factor at play. Once the French court actually believed the revolutionaries could win the war, and that was by no means a small hurdle to clear, a pesky genie began to well and truly run amuck. The genie of public opinion, which had been out of the bottle for some time now, was increasingly a significant factor in the calculations of court policies. Support for the war could be found throughout the kingdom. In one corner of society, many liberally-minded nobles sympathised with the Americans' form of ideological and political perspective. Historian George Bancroft argues that it was this factor, which he characterised as a movement for intellectual freedom, Which was the defining factor that pushed France into open conflict with England? Historian Bertha Gardner also argues that a reluctant Louis was overruled by public opinion in favour of intervention, and notes that the cause of the American colonies was taken up with immense enthusiasm. Intellectual crusades aside, war presented an opportunity to restore honour to the French nation for many other members of the noble warrior class. The American Revolution was their opportunity to fight the great enemy and restore honour not only to their country, but also, in many cases, to their family name as well. Thus, for the nobility of France, whether motivated by Enlightenment ideology or old school honour, there was plenty of reasons to get involved in the fight. The second estate, however, weren't the only supporters of intervention. The third estate were on the war bandwagon too. Like members of the Liberal nobility, in particular some members of the Third Estate, like the politically minded bourgeoisie, sought intervention for the idealized causes of liberty, justice and natural rights. Additionally, other members of the Third Estate, such as the merchants and traders, saw the economic opportunity intervention could bring and sided with Vergen's logic in that regard. In some ways, the case in favour of the conflict was similar to the case in favour of the conflict used by America to justify intervening in Cuba and commencing the Spanish-American War of 1898. War, it seemed, was not only the morally right thing to do, but it was the economically sensible thing to do as well. And unlike the public debate in America before the Spanish-American War of 1898, there was not a load of anti-interventionist voices within the French community that could push back against this possible intervention. Indeed, it was the opposite. The calls for war were deafening. How deafening, however, is a matter for debate. It is noteworthy that while historians George Bancroft and Bertha Gardner claim public opinion was the principal factor in facilitating French participation, not all historians agree. It's an aspect of, well, grey history. Acknowledging the influence of public opinion, historian Edward Corin argues that it was Foreign Minister Vergennes who actually pushed the French state into intervention, and it was not public opinion. The direction and momentum of French popular sentiment established, to some extent certainly, the possibilities and limitations of French official action, and this sentiment was in turn to no inconsiderable extent the product of the liberalism of the age. Yet it seems clear that the idea that French ought to intervene, if opportunity offered, between England and her North American colonies, in behalf of the latter, came in the first instance not from the Salon, but from the Foreign Office. And it is no less clear that the precise policy pursued by the French government towards the United States from 1776 on was shaped not by the philosophers, but by the professional diplomats. What drove France to declare war on Great Britain? remains grey. Irrelevant of what the deciding factor was, the result was the same. The result is black and white. Actually, that's a lie, it's not black and white and all, the result is red. Lots and lots of red. The result was bloodshed. Expensive bloodshed, to be more precise. Once involved in the conflict, the French had to remedy their key weakness against the British. In the Seven Years' War, the French Navy's inability to challenge British supremacy on the high seas was a significant contributing factor to Britain's victory. To rectify this situation, the French, now led by a king known for his fascination with naval conflicts, began to build. Now, if you think about what a navy is useful for, the French needed a world-class navy for three key reasons. The first was to move both men and materials into the various theatres of conflict. This not only included the Americas, where the conflict was being played out, but it also included Europe. The ability to implement, or at least threaten, an invasion of England was a necessity if you wanted to spread out and split the power of the British Navy. Britain, as a sea power, with a much smaller army, could never hope to invade France, so the threat was asymmetrical. But this threat of invasion was even greater once you realised that France could not only invade England with a newly enlarged navy, but also any English colony as well. With a sizable French fleet sailing the high seas, Britain would have to not only relocate resources away from North America to protect her home turf, but she would also need to relocate resources to protect her colonies and territories throughout the Caribbean and Asia as well. Thus, the ability to move men and supplies was a key factor not only for fighting the war, but, at a minimum, for expanding it. The second key reason why the French needed a large navy was to deny the British the same manoeuvrability. Britain was successful in the Seven Years' War in part because she was able to prevent France from supplying her colonies with both the men and materials needed to conduct the fight. If France could deny British troops their much-needed resources, the English could be expelled from the Americas once their armies ran short of vital supplies and fresh troops. Finally, the third reason the French needed a powerful navy was to prevent blockades. France's ability to sustain her war effort would be infringed had trade ground to a halt, and the British had blockaded France in the past. Furthermore, a naval blockade would have also infringed on the nation's ability to supply troops fighting in North America, including the Americans themselves, a necessity in this conflict. Thus, as a result of all these factors, the French nation put on their yellow high-vis vests and began building ships. Louis the Builder. Can he fix it? Yes, he can. Yet despite this newfound appreciation for shipbuilding, the French had an issue. How to pay for it? It's all well and good to say, Louis the Builder, can he fix it? Yes he can, but someone actually had to pay for the fixing. Finance Minister Turgot had forewarned that the conflict would bankrupt the state once the first shot was fired. He was wrong. His prediction should have been, once the first ship was built. France, attempting to sustain both a Continental Army and a Transcontinental Navy, was racking up a massive bill. Historian Peter Kraubtkin writes, It might be said also that the war in America, during which France had to build an entire fleet to oppose England's, completed the financial ruin of the old regime and hastened its downfall. As I try to explain to my sister when she buys a new pair of shoes that she describes as a necessity, necessities still have costs. While this new French fleet might have been a necessity for the war effort, this necessity also had a cost. A tremendous cost, to be more precise. Yet Turgot, despite being the person who warned of the financial ramifications of the war, would not be the one to figure out how to pay for it. Facing a hostile queen and a wider ministry, Togo resigned from his position in May 1776, just weeks before the colonies officially declared their independence from Great Britain. The man who would actually undertake the effort for paying for these boats was a Genevan, a self-made millionaire from non-noble origins named Jacques Necker. His lack of nobility meant that Necker couldn't occupy the post of Controller General of Finances, like Togo had, so instead he became the Director General of Finances. Now, If you just thought to yourself, why didn't the king just make this new guy a noble, well that's a very good question. Considering 50% of noble families had at this point in time received their ennoblement in the previous two centuries, it's a reasonable question to ask yourself. It's not like nobility was that precious anymore. But Jacques Necker was a Protestant. And because he was a Protestant, he couldn't become a French citizen. And then the king couldn't make Necker a noble because he wasn't a French citizen. Thus, Necker gets the second most powerful position of France, but not the title that came with it. A great example of the ancient and ridiculous customs of old regime France. Anyway, we digress. Necker, the great boat builder, if you will, had to find a way to pay for the boats, after he came to the office in June 1777. This is how historian Bertha Gardiner describes the situation. There were only three means of meeting the expenses of the war: increased taxation, economy, and loans. The first was impossible, the second only possible to a limited extent, and Necker therefore was compelled to borrow. In short, Necker was unable to increase taxation due to the political uproar that it would create from the privileged classes. Furthermore, he was unable to increase the size of the economy in any meaningful way because, well, he's fighting a war and economic growth happens gradually over time. Thus, he was only able to pay for the war in one way, and so Necker borrowed. In fact, he borrowed a lot. By the end of the war in 1783, five years since France openly entered the conflict, the cost to the French government was approximately 1.3 billion livres. Yet, what did that tremendous amount of money get the French? Well, it got them the Treaty of Paris, the document which ended the conflict and resulted in American victory. However, if you read that document, it can be said that, well, it wasn't really a French victory. Like the British Empire after World War II, the victorious superpower was irreversibly weakened by a war it supposedly won. More simplistically, France got in a bar fight to protect a friend, and France got the black eye while the friend got the babe. In exchange for a now humongous amount of government debt a ticking time bomb attached to the foundational pillars of the old regime, France reclaimed the lost territories of Tobago and Senegal. Whoopie-frickin-do. These were not the droids the French were looking for. French Canada remained in British hands. French India remained in British hands. Almost all the tangible benefits of the conflict never materialised. The return on equity was, in short, negligible. The practical implications of the Seven Years' War were far from undone. It's fair to say that the conflict didn't end as anticipated for Vergen and his grand plans. However, Vergen was not the only minister who could have felt aggrieved by the way the conflict played out. Jacques Necker also had to endure a subpar outcome by the time peace was settled in 1783. During his time in office, Necker had made many enemies at Versailles. Like his predecessor Turgot, Necker believed fundamental changes to French society were required for the nation to prosper into the future. And also like Turgot, he made enemies trying to implement those changes. As we all know, well, really all too well from modern politics, invested interests never seem to like fundamental changes, and the economic and political reforms Necker envisioned were no exception. While in office, Necker sought to decentralize the government and extend responsibility to the provinces. The plan was to empower provincial assemblies in order to encourage better local government. Necker also sought to balance the budget and believed cutting expenditure was the best means of doing this. Not ignoring the revenue side of the equation, Necker disapproved of the various privileges enjoyed by the two privileged orders and sought a more equitable distribution of the taxation burden. The first and second estates were still more or less enjoying a tax-free lifestyle, and Necker didn't think this was sustainable, especially considering the growing debt due to the American Revolutionary War. Unsurprisingly, such policies ruffled feathers in Versailles. His reforms may have been less radical than Turgot's, but they still made Necker many enemies, and he met serious resistance from entrenched interests. Stonewalled by nobles who were unwilling to curtail their spending nor surrender their taxation exemptions, Necker was unable to make meaningful wholesale reforms. He was, however, able to tinker at the edges, to the frustration of many, many people. Historian Robert Johnson says, For three years he attempted to carry the burden of the war by small economies affected at many points, which produced the minimum of result and the maximum of friction. In short, Necker was managing to do what all good modern-day treasurers try to avoid doing at all costs. He was aggrieving powerful interests for minimal fiscal benefit. However, these small saving measures were not Necker's greatest source of friction. Not by a long shot. Necker's greatest source of friction with his enemies came after the release of a very famous document. That document was titled The Compte Rendu. Released halfway through the American Revolutionary War in 1781, the Comte Rendu was a revolutionary publication. It was, in essence, a summary of the government's finances. Now, you may think to yourself that sounds like a very boring revolutionary publication, but believe me, important it was. The document was Necker's attempt to demonstrate France could afford the debt it was borrowing for the war effort. Thus, it was also an attempt to entice creditors to lend even more money to the French government as it pursued its costly endeavour against Great Britain. The surplus the document alluded to was in fact fiction, but the truth really matters when it comes to these sort of things. The document achieved its objectives. The fake surplus ensured credit remained abundant. Money continued to pour into the Treasury, despite France's questionable means to pay it back. Now, I know what you're thinking. And yes, the Comte-Rendu does sound pretty damn revolutionary, up there with like the 95 Theses and the Communist Manifesto and all those sort of books. Well, no, not quite, let's face it, it sounds pretty dull, but this document is probably the most important in the first few years leading up to the French Revolution, at least until the pamphlet wars begin. It was not so much what the Comte-Rendu contained, or even what it sought to achieve, it was what the Comte-Rendu represented and it was the document's unintended consequences which caused so much friction between Necker and his enemies at court. The Comte de Rendu had three important side effects. Number one, Necker's popularity increased. Number two, Necker's job was lost. And number three, Necker's boss, the king, was permanently weakened politically. The first side effect related to Necker's public image. The document made Necker look like a financial genius. Actually, more than a financial genius. The reason, after all, why a commoner, a foreigner, and a heretic was given the job in the first place was because he already had a good reputation when it came to finances. Liked by the public for his attempt to reduce the wasteful expenditure of the court and introduce more local government, Necker's popularity swelled even more after the release of the Comte de Rendu. The document showed that the French budget was in safe hands. This increased popularity enraged Necker's enemies, His enemies saw Necker's new level of popularity as a reason to move against him. And let's be clear, Necker had many enemies. Firstly, there was the courtiers, who felt the pain of the lesser salaries that Necker had forced upon them. Secondly, there were the Parlemon, who were hostile to Necker's proposed assemblies as that would threaten their monopoly on the opposition. And finally, there were the king's ministers, who were vying with Necker for power and the affection of the king. All of these groups saw Necker's increased popularity as a threat. His increased popularity could empower him to make headway on the very reforms that they had, until now, been successfully stalling. Thus, Necker's increase in popularity, the first consequence of the Comte de Rendu, paved the way for the second consequence, his dismissal. After the Comte de Rendu and the following boost in Necker's standing amongst the people, Necker's enemies began to actively undermine the minister with the goal of having him dismissed. Necker, for his part, actually helped his enemies achieve their goal. Seeing his increased popularity as a shield from their assault, Necker miscalculated in this game of political manoeuvring. Necker's hubris allowed his enemies to rid themselves of the Protestant and foreign upstart. This is how historian Gennetto Salvamini describes the events that unfolded in 1781. But when Necker, by these somewhat dubious methods, had reached the height of his popularity, the small group of court conspirators succeeded in overthrowing him, like his predecessor. The moving spirit in this intrigue was the Minister Maripa, who, jealous of Necker's influence, had been outraged by the publication of the Comte de Rendu, contrary as it was to every tradition of the absolute monarchy. To create difficulties for his colleague, he circulated a private memorandum from Necker to the king containing criticism of the Parlement's, and thus roused the whole Paris Parlement against him. The king's brother joined in the campaign out of resentment at such meagre economies as the minister had succeeded in making. Necker, believing himself assured of victory and anxious to quell all opposition, asked the king to admit him, though a Protestant, to the Council of State as a resounding proof of confidence. Maripa promptly seized the opportunity to play to the king's religious prejudices and declared that he would resign rather than allow the rights of the Catholic faith to be violated. The king, not daring to override religious scruples, offered Necker other satisfaction. Unwilling to accept a semi-victory that would have been a moral defeat, Necker wrote to the king a short and discourteous note and resigned from office on May 19, 1781. Jealous colleagues, bitter courtiers, enraged judges, disgruntled princes. These were some of the groups that helped Necker meet an untimely end. But it was Necker's misstep which ensured his downfall. The Protestant heretic, the untrustworthy foreigner, the dirty commoner, the hero of the people, was gone. So, what about point three? What about the third consequence of the Comte de Rendu, the weakening of the king? Historian Salvamini noted that the publication of the Comte de Rendu was contradictory to every tradition of the absolute monarchy. Historian Francois Mignot explores this further in his recount of Necker's dismissal. His economies displeased the courtiers. The measures of the provincial assemblies incurred the disapprobation of the parlements, which wished to monopolize opposition and the Prime Minister, Murapar, could not forgive him an appearance of credit. He was obliged to quit power in 1781, a few months after the publication of the famous Comte de Rendu of the Finances, which suddenly initiated France in knowledge of state matters and rendered absolute government forever impossible. That last line is the key line here. That last line strikes at the heart of the third key consequence of the Comte de Rendu. By shining a light into the darkness, by seeking to make not only the ministry, but by association the king himself publicly liable and responsible for the state's finances, Necker had breathed life into the very ideas that the American revolutionaries were fighting for, and he had done so on French soil. He had energised the Enlightenment philosophy in France. By releasing a budget that was by its very existence an implication that the government had a need, had an obligation, had a responsibility to manage the state's finances soundly, Necker was promoting the implied idea of ministerial accountability, of government competence, of government governing with the consent of the governed and for their benefit. In releasing the Comte Rindu, he was crystallising his popularity – Yet, through an act which in every way imaginable violated the traditions of absolute monarchy and the traditions of old regime France. In fact, it violated the traditions of absolute monarchy so much so that some perceived the act to be the first step to constitutional monarchy. Historian Charlie Matthews writes... The public, which had been given by Togo the reason for certain decrees, now interpreted the act of neckers to imply that the government had conceded it the right to know and advise about the national finances. The Comte Rendu was accordingly not only an interesting document, it was interpreted more or less distinctly to be a step towards constitutional government. The fact that the Comte de Rindoux was anything but a pile of pages with false figures on them seems to be agreed by a wide range of historians. Historian Paul Barthul called its publication The first revolutionary step France took. Historian Peter Krupten describes it as A heavy blow to the royal autocracy. A heavy blow it was indeed. Necker had invoked the ideas of the intellectual and philosophical movement which were energising the revolutionaries across the Atlantic. Necker had extolled the ideas of the Enlightenment, the ideas which Louis's predecessors and other European monarchs had spent so much time trying to stamp out. Perhaps Necker had no idea of the magnitude of his actions. Perhaps he inadvertently rendered absolute monarchy impossible, as proclaimed by historian Francois Mignot. But... Irrelevant of whether he meant to or not, Necker's popularity and his budget weakened the pillars of the old regime significantly. Henceforth, the people would expect competent and accountable ministers, and thus competent and accountable government. They would not settle for anything else, and they would take matters into their own hands if they weren't getting it. Thank you for listening to episode 3 One Revolutionary War. Next episode, we'll be covering the scandalous events that occur in the post Necker years, including reactionary noble plots and the famous Diamond Necklace Affair. An affair that cements Queen Marie Antoinette's image as a foreign monster. In fact, much worse than a foreign monster. Now, if you're enjoying Grey History, there is something you can do that will help me immensely. Tell your friends, your colleagues, your lovers, your neighbours, anyone who you think might be interested in a history podcast which explores the grey. It's obviously a new podcast and I need all the help I can get, so if you're enjoying the show, please tell someone about it and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you for listening and have a great day.